This is the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast, coming to you from the heart of Honolulu, Hawaii. Hui Kala is a dynamic family of faith committed to solid Bible teaching, discipleship, and helping you grow in your faith. Grab your Bible and prepare to dig deep into the Word with Pastor Anthony King. Abraham and uh, Isaac uh, are a picture of uh, Jesus Christ. We uh, start in Genesis chapter 12. Genesis chapter 12, starting in verse number 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. And I will make of thee a great nation. I will bless thee. And make thy name great, and thou shalt be a blessing. I will bless them that bless thee, and curse them that curse thee. And all in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Uh, can somebody help me with the name of this covenant? Just shout it out if you know it. The Abrahamic covenant. Abrahamic covenant has three parts. What's the first one? Land. Second part is? Third part is? Land, seed, blessing, if you're taking notes, and I highly recommend that you do. Land, seed, blessing make up the Abrahamic covenant. Now, this is really important uh, even today. Like, this is important this week, the Abrahamic covenant. Because God promised to Abraham, I will give you a land that, that you don't have yet. I'm going to give it to you in the future. And when I give it to you, it is yours. It's God-ordained, covenanted, holy land special because it belongs to God and God gave it to his people. That is Israel. So for us as Bible-believing Christians, because we believe the Bible is the word of God, when God says that land belongs to Israel, it belongs to Israel. Amen. Now, they want to take, somebody wants to take part of, of you know, Turkey or Iran or Iraq. They want to take part of California. We'll gladly. When it comes to Israel, God has already determined who that land belongs to. And we don't get the opportunity to say, well, you should just give it up to play nice with everyone else. So for us, when we as Bible-believing Christians say that the, the nation of Israel, that land belongs to Israel, uh, we do that with biblical authority. To say that we are going to, you know, we would agree or we would encourage uh, Israel to split it up with the Palestinians and take, you take half, we'll take the other half, is to go against what God has already said, that this land belongs to Israel, okay? So this is our view as Bible-believing Christians. God promises this great nation that he builds from them, Israel, that bless them, and I'm going to curse them that curse them. So if we as a nation, America, decide to go against Israel, it's already been predetermined that God is going to be against us when we do that. I mean, when you, when you take a look, at just and again, please understand, this is not, not political talk. This is 100% biblical talk. When you take a nation as small as Israel in, in, in square mileage, and you take a, a nation as small as Israel as far as the population is concerned, in an area where, where countries get steamrolled all the time, uh, they don't have a lot of money, they're not super rich, they don't have a massive export that they have, but they're, they're considered a national power even in the Middle East. Now, you take a, a country like Kuwait, for example. Kuwait is ridiculously rich with oil. When Iraq invaded Kuwait, Kuwait basically threw its hands up and gave up because they didn't have the capability, the power to fight against another nation. 
Israel's much smaller, but has never been one to run from a fight. Uh, and they've generally prevailed where other nations could not because they're God's chosen people. Now, I had a conversation with somebody this past week and so who said, well, hasn't God forgotten Israel because they turned their back on Jesus Christ? No, uh, because God's covenants are everlasting. Covenant doesn't have an expiration date. Like, I'm going to make a, a, a promise with Abraham, and whenever we get to a certain period of time, that, that covenant has an end or expiration date. Uh, the Abrahamic covenant is still in effect. And so these land seed blessings are still in effect. And so uh, it's important for us to understand as Bible-believing Christians, not as, as Americans or patriots or anything like that, to understand how we view Israel as a Bible-believing Christian. We believe that Israel, the, the, uh, the country, uh, it's important that we understand who Israel is and why Bible-believing Christians should side with Israel. Uh, it was interesting to me, to, uh, I saw a poll this past week that said, they polled Americans on how many people sided with Israel and how many sided with Hamas. Not Palestine, not Palestinians, but Hamas. And if you can imagine the demographics like, like, like 55 and up, like 90% sided with Israel. When you get down to like 35 to 45, uh, like 80% sided with Israel. When you got down to the demographics of like 18 to 25-year-olds, it was lopsided, 65 to 70% sided with Hamas. If you don't know, Hamas is a terrorist organization. It's not like a country or people or anything like that. But to show you how clueless the majority of people are, they thought that Hamas was a country and that Israel is fighting against this country who can't defend themselves. It would be like saying, do you support Israel or Al-Qaeda? And people said, I support Al-Qaeda. And you're like, wait, what? Do you, do you even understand what's going on here? So again, it's important to understand uh, how we view world events through a biblical lens and a biblical perspective. Super duper important. Now, as we get into the Abrahamic covenant, we see what here, land, seed, blessing. The Abrahamic covenant points us forward to the new covenant. Uh, the new covenant is the one that you and I are super duper excited about because it includes us. God says of Abraham's seed, which if you're not uh, a Jew, you're not of Abraham's seed. Of Abraham's seed, I'm going to build a great nation. Uh, did, did not include those of us that are non-Jews. Uh, I'm going to give land to these people, which does not include us if we are non-Jews. But then the last part, that blessing, and that all the nations of the world would be blessed, that's where you and I get super pumped up because that includes us. That blessing that would come from Abraham's seed is Jesus Christ. And so Jesus comes from Abraham's seed. Jesus is the blessing that's promised here. And so Jesus now institutes a new covenant. Now you're not, based on, you're not God's people based on your lineage or your heritage or what tribe uh, you come from. You're now God's child based on your faith in Jesus Christ. This is a new covenant. Jesus said uh, when he took the Last Supper with the apostles, uh, this is the New Testament in my blood. Uh, that word New Testament doesn't mean the second part of the Bible. It's okay, we're all alive. Um, the word New Testament doesn't mean the second part of the Bible. The word New Testament means new covenant. And so Jesus says, I'm establishing now, uh, I'm instituting, I'm inaugurating the new covenant. And the new covenant now is still ongoing as well. The new covenant has some, some parts that have, have been yet to be fulfilled still. But Jesus says, I'm instituting this new covenant. That new covenant that comes, that includes Jesus Christ, began with Abraham's Abrahamic covenant. 
And so it points forward to that. If we take a look at all the covenants of the Bible, they point forward towards Jesus Christ. You take the Davidic covenant, that David's kingdom will have no end, and that the, the, uh, the uh, king of the world will rule and reign from David's throne. That's a picture of Jesus Christ uh, in his millennial kingdom. And so again, everything points forward to Christ, especially the Abrahamic covenants. So how do we see parallels? How do we see the, the, the typology played out in the life of Abraham? First of all, God called Abraham to leave his home, travel to a new land, and humble himself. Then God would begin his work in him. Again, we see this Abrahamic covenant. Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house into a land that I'll show you. Hey, I want you to go to a foreign land. Where? God doesn't tell him. I just need you to pick up and go. You're going to leave all of your family. You're going to leave your dad's house. You're going to leave everybody that you know. And you're going to go into a land where you know no one and no one knows you. And so this would require Abraham, who was a ridiculously wealthy man at the time, to humble himself, to be willing to take on a, a lesser role, to go to a new place that he's never been before, and to humble himself. And God says, when you do that, then I will begin to unfold the work that I want to do in you and through you. By the same token, God sent Jesus Christ to leave heaven, to join us and humble himself. Then God would begin his work in him. And so here we see the parallel in the fact that Jesus left his home, heaven, where he had always been with God the Father. The Bible says he humbled himself and became a servant, a bond slave. He came to a place where no one knew him, but in this case, he knew everyone. Isn't that interesting? Nobody knows who Jesus is, but he knows who everyone is. And he not only knows their name, he knows the, the intents of their heart as well. That's why as Jesus did things, people were like, Wait a minute, we see in uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse number 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And so we see that Jesus Christ, uh, similarities between his life and the life of, uh, of Abraham. Next, we see through the blessing. And so Adam brought a curse, and uh, Abraham would be kind of another Adam, if you will. Again, uh, the, if you read through uh, theological studies of, of theologians throughout the ages, they talk of different Adams. And so there was Adam, the, uh, the father of all mankind, and then there was Noah, who became another Adam, and the fact that everybody would have to come through him. Then we have this idea of Abraham as yet another Adam, and the fact that all of Israel would come through him. He was kind of the beginning of everything, and through him would come the blessing. Again, land, seed, blessing, the blessing in the person of Jesus Christ. And so through Adam would come that. And so through, but for Christ, through Adam came the curse, but Jesus was the blessing. And so the promise that was made to Abraham was a promise of a one day coming blessing that Abraham would never actually see. It's interesting to note as well, this is just a good information as we talk through the covenants and promises that God makes. Of the three parts of the Abrahamic covenant, Abraham would see exactly zero of those promises come to pass in his lifetime. Not one. He would never have his own country where he was in charge. He would never see a great nation built. And he definitely would never see the blessing until Christ's arrival. And so Abraham, uh, while God had made a promise to him, would never actually see it fulfilled uh, even in his own lifetime. 
some people think that that's unfair, like, oh, God made a pro- promise to Abraham that Abraham never actually got to see. That's so unfair to Abraham. Important thing to note, this is just good life uh, perspective. It never was about Abraham to begin with. Right. <laughs> Ever. I think it was John, when John spoke through, um, I think it was eschatology or something like that, that when uh, God made a father, you know, like, like you put Abraham up on a pedestal, but Abraham was a tool because it, in the end was just about the glory of God. And so when we take a look at uh, Abraham's life, though, Abraham sought to save those who were under God's judgment. When you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, Sodom and Gomorrah was a town of, of great wickedness that God was going to destroy, was going to wipe it off the face of the planet. And Abraham actually pled for Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember Genesis chapter 18, verse number 22 is in your notes. And the men turned their faces from thence and went towards Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. And Abraham drew near and said, Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Peradventure there be 50 righteous within the city. Wilt thou also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are therein? That be far from thee to do after this manner to stay the righteous with the wicked and the righteous should be as the wicked. That be far from thee shall not judge of all the earth do right. Hold up, God. There's probably some good people in Sodom. Probably. If I could find 50 people, would you withhold your judgment? Would you be merciful and gracious to not just the 50, but all of Sodom. Would you, would you spare all of Sodom if I could find 50, 50 righteous people? And God, because he's merciful, because he's gracious, he says, yeah, I could totally do 50. And then Abraham comes back and says, okay, now, I couldn't find 50. But if I found I forget the numbers that he went down. Basically went down to, like, what, two? Does anybody remember how many he went, got down to? Ten. Ten righteous. If I could find ten righteous, would you spare? And God said, I'll say, uh, spare ten righteous. And finally Abraham gave up. I'm done. Can't do it. But Abraham did not want to see God's judgment. He actually pled with God that God would be merciful. Jesus is the one who now allows us to come to the Father. When we had once been the enemies of the Father, we now have peace with God through Jesus Christ. And so Abraham also in the, in the book of Romans uh, chapter 4 uh, is referred to as the father of our faith. So in your notes there, Romans chapter 4, verse number 16. Therefore it is a faith that it might be a, by grace to the end that our promise might be sure for all the, all the seed. Not only that which is of the law, but to that also which is of faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Now, some would take that phrase, and, and I can see it both ways, and so I don't really have a, a, a care on how you interpret it. But some people say, well, Paul's writing to the Jews in chapter number four, and so when he says, Abraham is the father of us all, uh, he's speaking of the Jews. I can understand it that way. I don't, wouldn't argue with you if that's what you said. But I can also read it as, but that which is of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all, all of us that are of faith. And so Abraham is the father of faith, could be interpreted that way. I, I see it that way as well. And so again, if you, if you don't like it one way or the other, that's fine with me. But I can see where you could take away that Abraham could be considered the father of faith. Again, were it not for Abraham, there would be no faith, for sure. And so while Abraham is referred to as the father of our faith, Jesus Christ is referred to as the author and finisher of our faith. 
Hebrews chapter 12, verse number 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. Now, God promised Abraham, I'm going to give you a great nation. And so, land, seed, blessing. Abraham was old. Sarah was older. It uh, didn't look like they were gonna, it was going to happen the way they wanted. And so, uh, Abraham and Sarah doubted God, problem number one. And then Sarah said, hey, Abraham, I'm getting kind of old. Why don't you take my handmaid, Hagar? Why don't you guys make a baby together? And God will bring forth a great nation from that. That was never God's plan. And let me help you understand something. You never have to sin to follow God's plan for your life. Ever. Well, I know dating's hard these days, so if I date an unbeliever, maybe I can actually get them saved. You don't have to sin to to get what God wants for your life. You never have to do that. Abraham and Hagar make a baby named Ishmael. This is not the promised child. This is not the great seed that would come. This is not the, the great nation that would be built. As a result, if you read through the Old Testament, you find through Ishmael's seed came all kinds of problems, all types of wars and fightings with the Jews. Ishmael's seed became the enemy of the Jews. And Ishmael, many people believe that the Ishmael seed is a derivative line where we we have a lot of the Arab nations now who actually practice uh, Islam and who are still the enemies of God and the enemy of God's people. And so big, huge mess that Abraham made by just not trusting God and being obedient. But then when Isaac came, Isaac was the son of promise. Isaac was the only son of Abraham, son of promise. He was born under miraculous circumstances, and he became the beginning of a new people. Abraham and Sarah were not supposed to have children. They were far past their childbearing years, but they had a son. They only had one, but they had one son. I don't even have to tell you the parallels. I think you probably see it already, right? Jesus Christ is the only begotten son of God born under miraculous circumstances as a son of promise who became the beginning of a new people. And so are you saying that Isaac is also a type of Jesus Christ? That's precisely what I'm saying. Now, hold up. There are some some false religions out there that would teach that Ishmael is a type of Satan and that Jesus and Satan are half-brothers. And that just as Ishmael was the, the unwanted child, so Satan is also the unwanted half-child of God. And again, none of this has any biblical relevance whatsoever. Not a shred of biblical evidence. It's all garbage. It's all uh, a, a foundation of false religion. So pay it no mind. Is that a cute story? Super cute. Uh, let me tell you a story about Winnie the Pooh. Um, cute story, right? We don't give any biblical credence to any statements like that because they're just not founded in truth. But Jesus Christ was the only begotten Son of God. God only had one Son, and His name was Jesus. And that one Son that He had was born under miraculous circumstances. He was born of a virgin, and through Jesus Christ would come God's people. Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren, That Jesus is the big brother. All of us are just adopted little brothers and sisters. But Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. And God created a brand new family through Jesus Christ. And those of us that have been saved, have been born again, have been adopted into that beautiful family. And Jesus Christ was the beginning of all of that. 
Now we find the story of, of Abraham sacrificing Isaac in Genesis chapter 22. Turn over to Genesis 22 if you would. We should just read through this together. It's a fascinating account. Passed after these causing the sin. It means he was putting Abraham to the test. God will often put his children to tests, not to prove to God whether or not they're, they're, they believe what they say. And get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains, which I'll tell thee of. Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass or donkey and took the two young men with him and Isaac his son and clave the wood for a burnt offering and rose up and went into the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass or the donkey, and I, will, the lad, I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. Abraham took the wood and the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac his son. And he took the knife in his hand, and they went both of them together. And Isaac spake unto Abraham his father and says, My father, hear my, my son. And he said, Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So they went both of them together. They came to the place that God had told them, and Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. Abraham stretched forth his knife and took his knife to slay his son. And the angel of the Lord called out unto him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here am I. He said, Lay not thine hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God, seeing as thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold him, uh, behind him a ram was caught in a thicket by his horns, and Abraham went and took the ram and offered up the burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. So we see an incredible story. God tells Abraham, I need you to sacrifice your son. Wait, you mean the only son that I have? Yeah, that son. You mean the son that a great nation is going to come from? Yes, that son. Okay. And Abraham takes Isaac up there, binds him, lays him down, puts wood on him, getting ready to kill him and then set it on fire, a burnt offering before the Lord. And God says, stop. Wait. I got you. I see that your faith, the angel of the Lord says this, I see your faith, no need for that. Abraham sees a ram caught as an acceptable sacrifice, kills the, the, the ram, and Isaac is spared. Now, I'm weird, and as I think through this story, I think to myself, Adam, or, I'm sorry, Isaac and, and Abraham coming down from the mountain, what type of conversation would that have been? I did, there was a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. I wasn't going to kill the kid. Like, I, I can't, like in my mind, I'm thinking through like how that happens, you know? But here, here's what we, what we do know about this uh, endeavor here. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his only son, and Isaac was willing to follow, follow his father in obedience. Sometimes people refer to, to this story here. Um, some theologians agree, believe, and I, I would agree, that Isaac was probably maybe in his 30s here in the passage of time from the time that, uh, that, that he was born until this time. Uh, some timeline people follow that. Other people think he was a small boy. That's why he's referred to as a lad. Um, but whatever the case, Isaac was old enough to understand what was going on in his mind, which also meant that Isaac was smart enough to run if he wanted to. But he chose not to. 
And so I'm not sure how old Isaac was, and I, I think it's inconsequential to this, but Isaac could have ran away from him. I don't fight. I'm not arguing. I'm just going to wait for, for what's coming. And he was obedient in this case here. We see that God the Father was willing to sacrifice his only son, and Jesus was willing to follow his father also in obedience. From the beginning of the world, before the world was ever created, God already had a, a plan to redeem you and I. In the Garden of Eden, God voiced what that plan was. Oh, oh Satan and sin, you will be crushed by the seed of woman. Um, my son is coming and he will set these things right. He will defeat sin where everyone else has been powerless to defeat. And God already had a plan that Jesus Christ would suffer, bleed, be publicly humiliated, publicly executed, and die for our sins. And Jesus knew that from before the world was created. And when the time came that Jesus Christ left heaven and became an incarnate man, Jesus was obedient then. He was obedient in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says not. He's seated at the right hand of the Father in obedience. And when Jesus comes back at the rapture, he's coming back at the beckoning of his Father. And he'll be obedient to his Father. And so we see this life of perfect obedience in the life of Jesus Christ and a perfect picture of this willingness to die for the sins of mankind. John chapter 10, verse number 17 is in your notes. I love, 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 love this. Therefore doth my Father love me because I lay down my life that I, may take my, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself, and I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment I, have I received of my Father. Jesus is saying this, when I die, please understand, I'm only dying because I choose to die. <laughs> you couldn't take my life if you wanted to. But I willingly lay my life down so that I can also, of my own power, take it up again. And so again, we see the obedience of Jesus Christ, willing to die for the sins you know, I saw on television, this is probably, man, 15 plus years or so ago, um, it was like an Easter special on Larry King life, if you ever remember Larry King. Uh, and he's talking to, to all these religious leaders from around the world, and he's got a, a rabbi and a Catholic priest, and then he's got a, a, a Bible-believing Christian pastor on. And so he's asking them, just like, well, you know, who killed Jesus? And Larry King was a Jewish guy, and so uh, this guy's talking about, well, the Jews hated him, and, you know, they, they wanted to, to see him brought down, and he was, you know, stealing their popularity, and so the Jews put him to death, and goes the next guy, and he's like, it was the Romans, the Romans did this, only they had the power to crucify Jesus, the Jews couldn't have crucified anybody without the Romans' consent, and so it was the Romans' fault that they did this, and uh, that and the other, and they get to the, the Bible-believing uh, pastor, and they say, uh, who killed Jesus? And he says, I did. And he goes, I'm sorry, what? Uh, my sin killed Jesus. No, nobody killed Jesus. Jesus laid down his life, and he laid down his life because of my sin. I killed Jesus, and you did too. And I was just like, like I stood up in the living room and was just like, yes, come on, man. I love it. But again, this picture in John chapter 10 that Jesus gives, nobody took my life. Do you think the Jews were powerful enough to kill me? No way. You think the Romans were powerful enough to crucify me? No, no. I laid down my life because I have the power to also take it up again. Next, we see that Isaac was spared as a ram was caught in the thicket and served as a substitute. Abraham is phenomenal, but when you look at this in the picture of you and I, it was you and I that were supposed to be sacrificed, but Jesus took our place. Jesus would get no break because there was a substitute 
substitute for that sacrifice. Jesus was the substitute for the sacrifice. If you get your Bible still open in Genesis chapter 22, you need to take a look at verse number the text. I don't believe it is. I believe it's just if you look at verse number eight, and Abraham said, my son, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. So they went both of them together. The, it does not say, my son, God will provide for himself a lamb. It says, God will provide himself a lamb. And I believe, because God chooses every single word on purpose, that God was saying, one of these days, God will provide himself as the lamb of God who would be slain for the sins of the world. I, I really believe that. I don't believe that the Bible has coincidences or like, oh, it's kind of an you know, unfortunate wording or anything like that. Now, do I believe that Moses perf- purposely did that? Like, oh, I think this would be really good to point forward to the Messiah. I believe that Moses was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, which told him what to write. And so, again, I, is it is it neat? Is it unique? I think absolutely. I think it's supernatural. I think it's one of the ways that God just shows us that he has always looked forward for our redemption. Now, how do we apply this to, to our lives? What's the, the practical takeaway from this? Uh, again, such a rich picture of, of God's love for us. First of all, the covenants, all of them in the Bible, are proof that God always keeps his promises. Again, you might not see that promise come to fruition in your lifetime, but, but mind you, uh, God, whatever he promises, he's going to do. Guaranteed. The Bible says that God's not slack concerning his promises. God doesn't forget or go back on his word the way that other people do. And so if God's promised, you can guarantee he's going to see it through. Train up a child in the way he should go. When he's old, he won't depart from it. Well, my, you know, 21-year-old kid's rebelling. It's not over yet, you know? I believe that God's promise will come to fruition. I really do. You know, and so again, when we look at the promises of God, you and I can take those to the bank even when they don't feel right even when they don't feel like we're going to see that promise come to come true god always keeps his promises guaranteed he'd say like say amen tonight if you believe the bible's word of god amen say amen tonight if you believe in the promises word amen say amen if you believe god keeps his word amen you know live like it this week don't just shout like it's a pep rally like live like this is the word of god written to you and it's full of promises that god wants you to latch onto for hope every single day that's what the Bible is. Unfortunate thing about the majority of Christians, the majority of Christians that I've met, at least, let me just say this, have never read the Bible all the way through. We say we believe it's the Word of God, but you don't even know what it says. You don't even know what's in there. And so when they're confronted with atheists or non-believers who have actually read the Bible, they don't know what to say. Well, is it true that the Bible condemns, you know, eating bacon in the same passage that condemns homosexuality? Yeah, but, you know, read the Bible and you would know those types of things. But have been promised to you. And so again, become a student of the Word of God so that you can dig into, dive into, and latch onto the promises of the Word of God. Second takeaway from this, God has always desired to save us. Always. The story of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is the, the salvation of mankind and the glory of God. That's it. The whole thing. Man, you read, pick a book. The book of Esther. Fun little nugget. The book of Esther doesn't ever actually include the name of God anywhere in it throughout the entire book. But it is a story of the redemption of mankind through a loving, gracious God. It's a story. 
Book of Ruth, what's it about? It's about the redemption of mankind through a loving and gracious God. The entire Bible is full of the, that theme that runs all the way through it. God has always desired to save us. Why does that matter? Because first of all, God wants you say, well, I've been saved. Good. Now God wants you to help him find other people that need to know him so that God can save them. Because from the beginning of the Bible and eternity past, God's desire has been to save people from their sins. Abrahamic covenant, land, seed, blessing. Oh, it was just about God creating a nation. It was God creating a nation so that he could bring us a Messiah to save us from our sins. It's all throughout the Bible. The promises of God are all about what God wants to do for us by saving us from our sin so that he gets maximum glory from our lives. Final thought here tonight. God didn't sacrifice easily replaceable animals to save us, but he sacrificed his only son. When you think back of the Old Testament sacrifices, what did they do? Oh, let's go get a ram. Let's go get a sheep. Let's go get a, a, a bull. We'll sacrifice that. Guess what? We got, you know, a hundred sheep. Which one should we kill? The best one we got. Okay. Well, after that one's gone, guess what? We still got, you know, 99 more sheep. We got 99 more sacrifices that could be made. God didn't give us something that he could easily replace to redeem us. He gave us the most valuable thing that he has ever had, and that is his own son. And so what does that mean? That means God gave his best to save you. God gave his best to save me. I, I often share this. And I hope you can catch my train of thought again. I have kind of a weird train of thought sometimes. But if God provided such a high price to redeem me from my sin, I want my life to give God a good return on his investment. I want to live a life that was worth Jesus dying for. I don't want to just come and enjoy life and, and man, eat pizza and hang out with my friends and watch some Netflix and uh, drink coffee and, and, man, when it's time to die, it's time to die. At least I get to go to heaven. No, 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 no. God paid an incredibly high price to redeem my life from the prison of sin, from the kingdom of Satan. That's how I want to live. Because God gave his best. God forbid that I give anything less than my best. So is there application for Abraham being you know, a picture of Jesus Christ? 101 applications, take your pick. But I never want us to come to, to a study like this and go, oh, that's kind of cool, I never saw that before. Oh, wow, you know, neat, neat word there. Hey, what does this mean for me and what does God expect of me? The most important thing in the world, if you're here today and you're not sure that you're saved, God sent his son to save you from your sin. He, he loves you. He's pursuing you. He always has. He always will until the day that you take your last breath and God says, I did my best. God wants to save you from your sin. I'm not sure what it is that's holding you back from that, but I would encourage you, submit that to God tonight and follow him. Thanks for joining us for the Hui Kala Baptist Church podcast. We'd love to have you as our guest this Sunday morning at 10 a.m. You'll find exciting classes for your keiki, a welcoming church family, and a message from the Bible that's sure to encourage your heart. Join us this Sunday. You belong here.